Welcome to Preaching at Trinity. Preaching at Trinity is the podcast of the sermons preached at Trinity Baptist Church of Westfield, Indiana. We hope you enjoy this series of messages preached by Pastor Minton on what it means to be moved with compassion. Here is our senior pastor at Trinity Baptist Church, Dr. Daniel Minton. Matthew 14, I was very surprised this week studying this passage and excited to share with you about why Christ is filled with compassion from Matthew chapter 14. Last week as we began this study of Jesus and how his heart is moved by compassion, causing him to stop what he's doing and shift his attention to a particular person, or in this case, a group of people. Last week we saw how Jesus was moved by compassion by the people of Galilee, who he said were like sheep without a shepherd. They were lost sheep, and they'd been scattered and worn down by the spiritual barrage of religious leaders. They were struggling under the enormous weight of their sin, and they had no relief. And yet Jesus, who's moved with compassion, desires to lift their sin burden. And he invites those who are weary and heavy laden to come to him. And we see the same compassion from Jesus here in Matthew 14. It's best known for the feeding of the 5,000. If you uh, familiar with that, that's often what, uh, what we think about. Jesus feeds the 5,000, then he goes away by himself to pray, and then he walks on water and performs uh, multiple miracles back to back to back. However, before Jesus feeds the people, it is the tugging at his heart that compels him to act in this way. And so we'll see, actually, we'll see that Jesus is hurting. In fact, I want you to see that before we even get started. Look at verse 13, and notice what it says. When Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. When Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion them. Now jump back to verse 3 because I really want to see this setting. What is it that's caused Jesus to be moved with compassion towards this multitude that is following him? In fact, they're following him quite rapidly. In fact, the story, the account says they follow him so, so quickly they, they exit the cities to find him and to be with him that they forget to bring food They forget to bring anything to care for themselves for the day. But if you look back at verse 3, we we get a little more historical setting for this context. Verse 3 says, For Herod had laid hold of John, as John the Baptist, and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because John had said to him, It is not lawful for you to have her. And although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was celebrated, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. Therefore, he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. So she, having been prompted by her mother, said, Give me John the Baptist's head here on a platter. And the king was sorry. 
Nevertheless, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. So he sent and had John beheaded in prison, and his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Then his disciples, as John the Baptist's disciples, came and took away the body, buried it, and went and told Jesus. Verse 13, when Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. When it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, this is a deserted place and the hour is already late. Send the multitudes away that they may go into the village and buy themselves food. But Jesus said to them, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, we have here only five loaves and two fishes. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass, and he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and brake and gave the loaves to the disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitude. So they all ate and were filled, and they took up twelve baskets full of fragments that remained. Those, now those who had eaten were about five thousand men, besides women and children. Keep reading with me. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Twice here, Jesus sought solitude. And uh, it's very important to recognize why he's doing it. And it's probably going to surprise you. Well, we, we started in verse 3, and we heard how Herod has laid hold on John the Baptist, murdered him, for the sake of his own pride. In fact, Herod had arrested John because John had spoken the truth that Herod was an adulterous man. He had taken his brother Philip's wife, Herodias, as his own wife. He stole his brother's wife. Now listen, Herodias is not innocent in this either. She is literally climbing the political ladder from one brother to another. Herod's brother Philip, Philip Herod would have been his name. He was less powerful. He was not as dynamic. He was not going to rise to power like Philip, we might call him Philip the Tetrarch here, would be. Now Herod fears the people, and he fears the people because they believe that John is a prophet. And so although he arrested him, he had really no intention of putting him to death, although verse 5 is really clear. I think it was verse 5. Yeah, verse 5, although he wanted to put him to death, he feared the multitude. He feared the people. Herod, if nothing else, is an opportunist. Okay, he's not a religious man per se, although he fully, I believe, fully understands the religion of Judaism. He's a politician. He knows how to play the game. In fact, history tells us this Herod is not even Jewish. He's been put in place by Rome to rule in the region of Judea and Idumea, and he's, he's ruling that area. He's half Idumean and he's half Samaritan, actually. So he's not even Jewish. So there's a lot of animosity between him, and yet his interests, his own self-interests, are the same as the interests, or similar to the interests of the religious leaders. Power, control independent from, from Rome, yet at the same time under Rome. 
And so he's an opportunist. And here he is hosting a, a feast, a dinner, and his daughter, stepdaughter, is dancing, and it pleases him so much that he makes this quick, rash vow before his guests. I, she is so good, I'm willing to give her anything up to half of my kingdom. And yet all she asks for is John the Baptist's head, and she does it because of her mother. Her mother is so bitter and anger because John has pointed out her sin and her lust for power and her absolute moral depravity, and he, he highlights that before the people, and he, he's humiliated her, and she never forgot it. And so Herodias' daughter requests in verse 8 for the head of John the Baptist. Now I want you to notice, though, Herod's response Verse 5 was so clear. Herod wants to put him to death, but he fears the people. And then verse 9 says, And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, because of the oath and because of those who sat with him, he commanded it to be given to her. Herod is sorry here, but he is not repentant. He's filled with remorse over the situation that he's gotten himself into, but he is not sorry enough to not kill John. Maybe he's sorry. In fact, a lot of people think he's extremely superstitious, and I believe he is. He's described as being fox-like. Um, he's arrogant, and yet I think he's probably regretful because it's his birthday and he kills a man and that's a bad omen to shed blood on your birthday he's not sorry that john is dead and so whatever the reason herod regrets the oath but he keeps it and he's not regretful of his sin he's just sorry about the circumstance that he's gotten himself into there's a great difference between being sorry for a bad situation, for difficult circumstances or a predicament, and remorse over one's own sin. And we can do the same thing. We can be sorry over the consequences that we're suffering because of our own decisions or the predicament that we find ourselves in. We can be sorry over those things, yet not repentant, not in agreement with God over our own sin. And so ask yourself today, how do you know if you're repentant or you're just sorry? That's an important question that we should all ask ourselves. Maybe the next time you find yourself in a, we'll just call it a predicament, and, and you're remorseful, is it because of your sin and the consequence of your own sin and what your sin has done to the Lord? Or are you just regretful of the, the bad circumstances you find yourself in? There's a difference. Paul addressed some of the same issues in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9. He's addressing the Corinthian church. He's already written them one letter. Now, these are believers that he's writing to, but he says in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 9, Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation. Not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing that you sorrowed in a godly manner. 
Now, the context is that Paul had rebuked the church harshly in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and chapter 7 for the sin that was in the church. And according to 2 Corinthians, they'd repented. They agreed with God about the wickedness of their own sins, and that resulted in a change of their heart, a change of their life. And Paul rejoices with them. It wasn't just sorry for the circumstances they found themselves in. I was taught this a lot as a kid. My parents were really good about teaching me about this, saying, apologize to your sister. I am sorry that you were so cruel to me that it caused me to inflict bodily harm upon you. Right? Is that sorry? That's being sorry. I'm sorry I got caught. I am not regretful for the blows that I inflicted upon her. Right? There's a difference, and we know it. We teach it to our children. An agreement. One is just sorry for the predicament we get ourselves into. The other is being sorry for the sin that we cause against our Savior, and we agree with God about it. And so here in this story, Herod, he's sorry. He regrets his rash oath. He regrets that he made it in front of a bunch of his so-called friends. He regrets that he's gotten himself in this situation that's caused him to do something that he doesn't want to do, but it, he, doesn't, he wants to kill him, but not because it might endanger some, some political stance that he has. It's just sin upon sin. It's not repentance before God. And so we're told at the end of the passage in Matthew that John's disciples took his body, buried him, and then told Jesus what had happened. And then verse 13, we read these lines. When Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. And so Jesus departs by himself. Now listen, he's not alone. It means he's by, he's separate from the crowd. In fact, Mark chapter 6, verse 32 says, the disciples took him by boat so that he could be alone. The idea is, just think of it this way, the disciples in this point, they're acting more like bodyguards than disciples. They're trying to be a buffer between him and the crowd so that Jesus can have solitude. He seeks solitude, and it's solitude to mourn. And whenever Jesus seeks solitude, it is to pray. We saw it even at the end of the passage. That's why I read all the way through where Jesus feeds the 5,000 and he sends the disciples away so that he can go up on a mountain truly by himself and pray. And there he communes with the Lord. And so he seeks this solitude, first by boat and then by literally sending everyone away to go to a de deserted place. Now listen, I'm going to... I'm going to tell you what my thinking was wrong on this passage. And I think that your thinking is probably wrong as well. Because when I read this, immediately my thought is that Jesus wants to be alone because of John, the news of John the Baptist's death. But we're reading it wrong. There's this subtle statement at verse 13, when Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat. So I asked myself, what is it? It's a very important question. Jesus is actually mourning the false belief. In fact, jump back with me to chapter 14, verse 1. And it actually is a little bit more clear when we read. Now, I purposely didn't read these because I wanted to lead you to the same poor decision that I made. Now let's go to the right decision. 
Verse 1. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the report that Jesus about Jesus and said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He's risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Now we have a clause. For Herod had laid hold. It's past tense. It's describing what Herod had already done. So here's the order of events, and it's actually really important. First, John the Baptist is murdered. Second, Herod hears about Jesus' ministry, and automatically he thinks that's John the Baptist risen from the dead. Then Jesus hears of John's death. And Jesus mourns the news that Herod does not understand the power and person of Jesus Christ. You see, the it of verse 13 is not that John the Baptist is dead. By the way, Jesus knew it was going to happen. He mourns the fact that, that Herod, as a political leader, and we also know the other religious leaders, misunderstand Jesus. They think he's just a prophet. And they misunderstand that he is the Messiah, the one who's been sent from God. They, they don't know who Jesus is. And that's what causes Jesus to mourn. That's why he seeks solitude in verse 13. He departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself, or to be by himself. And when the multitude heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And the idea is they're emptying the cities following Jesus. And so Herod does not understand what John 14, 6 tells us, that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes to the Father but by him. Herod, this political figurehead, this man who's in charge of the, the religious customs on behalf of Rome, and he's deeply familiar with Jewish customs, and he's deeply familiar with the teachings of Jesus, and yet he's superstitious, as I said, cunning or fox-like, he's arrogant, and he stands here as a representative of the powerful leaders of Israel who have mistaken who Jesus is. He's not just another prophet. And now we have the crowd searching for Jesus. The idea, as I said, is they're eagerly fleeing the cities to come to Jesus, to hear from him. These people are hungry. Not physically, they will be by the end of the day. They're spiritually hungry for help. We already saw that last week. They're like lost sheep, scattered, weary, beaten down. They cannot move anymore because of the the spiritual oppression that they are under by their own doings and by the religious leaders. And now some of the religious leaders, they don't even understand Jesus. These people who have read the law, who are supposed to be experts in the law, they don't know that he is the Messiah. And Jesus mourns that. He mourns that they misunderstand him. And yet, he goes to seek solitude. To be alone, to, to pray with the Father. And the people flock to him like sheep 
without a shepherd. And that's what moves Jesus. Now think about this. Jesus Christ is in deep pain here. I, I, I don't doubt that he is pained that John the Baptist is dead. I'm not saying he doesn't care about that. But it's the complete misunderstanding by the religious leaders of mankind, of Israel, that they don't know who God is. And that breaks his heart. And then at the same time, he sees these lost sheep pouring out of the cities because they want to know him. Well, they kind of want to know him. They want to see his power. They, they want to hear his teachings. They're spiritually hungry. They're so desperate and desire to understand who he is and understand the eternal truths and see this power from God that they actually forego food. They, they flee the cities without anything to care for themselves and they get themselves into a, a physical predicament. They're hungry and they're going to do it again a little bit later, a few months later. And so they skip eating in order to hear the truth from Jesus. That's a spiritual hunger. To forego physical needs in order to try and get something that satisfies the spiritual appetite. Unfortunately, the people see the power of Jesus as a great opportunity. An opportunity, as we're going to see in a minute, to make him a physical king who will rule. Jesus wants to be the king of their heart, but they want him to be the king of Israel. And so notice what Jesus does. He gives them the gospel. We're told in verse 14, he went out and he saw the great multitude. He's moved with compassion. He heals the sick. And then verse 15 says, when it was evening, his disciples came to him. Now, we, we really need to see some other passages. Luke chapter 9 has the same story. It doesn't say that Jesus is moved with compassion, but it has the historical accuracy of what went on. Jesus begins to preach the kingdom of heaven to them. He heals the sick, but he preaches that. Once he has their attention, he preaches them the gospel of the kingdom. He explains to them, therefore, the rule and the authority of God. Now, why is he doing this? Well, he just got news that all the people ruling, they don't understand him. And so he's trying to straighten things out. He's explaining to them that God is sovereign over all things. And that God has established or will establish a kingdom. Now, we could preach that same message going all the way back to the establishment of, of the world, the creation of mankind, where God, as the king, creates a garden of Eden, a, a kingdom, and he sets a man and a woman in there, and he commands them what to do, and he walks with them in the evening as their king. And they ruined it. And all through the Old Testament, God promises to redeem that kingdom as the sovereign rule. To, to set up and restore the spiritual uh, wickedness of man and redeem him back to himself, buy him back. Jesus promises to make all things new. And so he promises to regenerate the fallen race. That's the king who has come. 
Unfortunately, the people don't recognize it. He preaches the necessity of a fallen mankind to recognize the Messiah. In fact, John chapter 6, verse 14, gives us this incredible truth. The people actually take his, his teaching to heart, but they misinterpret it. And this is really important. We are tempted to do this at times. We are tempted to misunderstand Jesus. And we are tempted to believe things about him that we want him to be true, but they're misconstrued in our own mind. In fact, John chapter 6, verse 14 says this. Then those men, he's just preached the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Then those men, when they had seen the signs that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. I find this astonishing. He, he preaches the kingdom of heaven. Now remember, John the Baptist preached the same thing. John the Baptist said the kingdom of heaven is, is nigh, it's near. The king is coming. And then Jesus Christ comes on the scene, literally at the, sea of Gal or at the Jordan River, and John is baptizing, and he points to Jesus at the hour of the evening sacrifice, and he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here is the Messiah. The king is here. And did the people recognize it? No. In fact, what are their words in John 6, 14? This is the prophet. This is the one who was prophesied in the Old Testament. They're saying he's the Messiah. But their view of the Messiah is someone who will sit on an earthly throne, who will release them from the bondage of Rome, who will fix the problems of their government and their society. He's the guy who's going to take care of things for them physically. They're not looking for a spiritual savior. And that's the problem. In fact, notice Jesus' response. As soon as they decide to take him by force to make him king, now Matthew tells them he sent everyone away. I don't know what he did, but he did it with such authority that they didn't try to force to make him king. Jesus sends the disciples away. Jesus sends the crowd away. And what's he do next? He departs to the mountain to pray. The people have misunderstood him again. Or they saw the miracle, they saw him as a, a physical provider, but they didn't see him as a spiritual savior. And so the same thing that grieved Jesus about Herod, the fact that he misunderstood the Messiah, is now exactly the same thing the crowd does. I remind you back at verse 13, Jesus is grieved by this. Jesus is in pain. And he seeks to be alone with the Father. And yet, the crowd interrupts. They interrupt his time with the Father. And that interruption causes Jesus to be moved deeply by compassion. Because he sees these people and he sees them as they are. He sees them better than they see themselves. He knows how spiritually destitute they are. And they don't recognize that. And so at the end, the very same thing happens. 
repeatedly Jesus is misunderstood. In fact, I'll go so far as to say that they're treating Jesus like he's a genie, right? Who can give them their wishes, not the Messiah. They understand that Jesus is powerful. They've seen his signs. They've seen the miracles. I mean, he's healing people all day long. He's feeding people miraculously. But the preaching about the kingdom, they don't get it. They understand he's righteous. He's a prophet. They know he's sent from God. But they don't see him as the spiritual Messiah. And his people are hungry for help. They're searching to be saved. They're searching for salvation, but from what? They want an earthly king who will save them from Rome. They want their freedom as, as countrymen. They want the comforts of a society that is, that is managed by a king who rules with authority. They're not looking for someone to free them from their sin. And so I actually say they're the same as we read in verse 9. Herod, the king, was sorry, but he wasn't repentant. Sorry, but not ready to agree with God about the needs spiritually. Listen, what are some ways that you demonstrate being sorry, but not repentant? This is a deep question that actually I think involves a lot of introspective questioning. We, we should ask ourselves here, maybe we don't, we probably don't believe the same lie about Jesus that they did. They believed that Jesus, well, maybe we do. They believed Jesus was their earthly benefactor. The one who gave them comfort, met their needs, but also their desires. They weren't looking at him as the spiritual provider that they needed. And so I ask you, what does godly repentance look like? And how is it important to you? Well, what's interesting is I think there's a subtle change. All this occurs, this is at the end of Jesus' second year of ministry, the feeding of the 5,000. So a few weeks, maybe a month or two has passed. Jesus is in the beginning of his third year of ministry, the final year of ministry, and we get to Matthew chapter 15. Would you turn to Matthew 15? Verse 32, we have a very similar story. Because we actually find that there's still thousands of people searching and hungry. But I think there's a subtle difference here. Verse 32, this is what we call the feeding of the 4,000. Two different events. Verse 32, now Jesus called his disciples to himself and said... I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. And I do not want to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Then his disciples said to him, where could we get enough bread in the wilderness to fill such a great multitude? Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few little fish. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground 
And he took the seven loaves and the fish and gave thanks, broke them, and gave them to his disciples. And the disciples gave to the multitude. So they all ate and were filled, and they took up seven large baskets full of the fragments that were left. Now those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children, and he sent away the multitude, got into the boat, and came to the region of Magdala. I think there's a subtle difference here, a couple subtle differences. They've been with Jesus for three days. This isn't a one-hit, one-day wonder. The first time he feeds the 5,000, in one day they flee the city to follow him. These people, I see a deeper commitment occurring. For three days, they sat under the teaching of Jesus. They're learning. They're growing. They're hearing the same things. Mark chapter 8 tells us, that it gives us the same account. They're hearing the gospel of the kingdom. This time, though, Jesus is not going to, to send them away. Again, he's moved with compassion. This time, it doesn't say he was. He says he is moved with compassion. And Jesus is not going to send them away so that they faint on the way home. Now, listen, this is physical. He spent three days ministering to them spiritually. And now they are worn out and they're in danger of fainting, literally falling down from exhaustion, lack of nourishment. And Jesus is not as concerned about their physical as he is their spiritual. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. He's, he's concerned with their physical need. He wants them to get home safe. But why? He wants them to ponder the spiritual truth. He doesn't want them to be overcome by the physical issues of fainting on the way home that they, they fail to consider the spiritual. Three days of teaching. Three days of learning at the feet of Jesus. And he wants them to leave physically strong as they consider the spiritual needs that have been addressed. Listen, we often think of repentance as a, a quick, one-time event. We boil it down to a moment, a prayer, a change of mind, and yet it's more than that. Repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of action. These people are misguided. We saw that last week. They're like sheep without a shepherd. They're scattered. They're wandering, hopeless. They believe false things about the Messiah. And I think what these two events together tell us is that Jesus is fixing that, and it takes time. The first time they come and they're hungry, and maybe some of them are just hungry to, to see the miracles. Some of them are hungry to have their ailments repaired. Some of them probably genuinely want to hear the teachings. But this second time, for three days, they sit under his instruction. God is fixing their hearts. He's changing their hearts. He's changing the lies that they believe in their heart. And these people must stop trying to be righteous enough. And they must finally just agree with God that they need his righteousness. That they're lost. That God is right, not them. They have to be honest, not just sorry about their condition. 
oh, it's so much easier to focus on the physical than the spiritual. And Jesus doesn't want to be the savior of their country. He doesn't want to be the savior of their physical condition. He doesn't want to be the savior of their bank account. He's come to be the savior of their soul. And so I ask you today, is Jesus the savior of your soul? We hope that today's message has challenged you spiritually and has been an encouragement to you in your walk with the Lord. For more information about Trinity Baptist Church, or if you have questions about your relationship with Jesus Christ, please contact us on our website at tbcwestfield.com or on Facebook or Instagram at tbcwestfield. Thank you so much for listening today. Join us again next time for more Preaching at Trinity.